0: Mark chapter 6, we continue in the gospel of Mark, beginning uh, with chapter 6 this morning. What we've seen through the end of chapter 4 and through chapter 5 has been nothing short of mind-blowing amazing. Jesus demonstrating power over creation by calming a raging storm just instantly. Jesus calming a storm inside of a man. That required him to cast out a legion of demons. Jesus healing an old woman who couldn't be healed by the doctors, had this bleeding issue for over 12 years. Jesus raising a, a little girl from the dead. I mean, this is the pinnacle of Jesus' powers, it seems. His disciples were amazed and afraid. The Gentiles were amazed and afraid. Others believed and were saved. The kingdom's growing, the kingdom is spreading. Just as Jesus had been talking about right before all of this in Mark chapter 4, right? The parable of the soils, the parable of the kingdom. Now that you see the kingdom doing this amazing things. And so in chapter 6, he goes back to his hometown. He's going to get a hero's welcome, right? Red carpet rolled out, parade, key to the city, a day in his honor. Not quite. Chapter 6, verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown. and His disciples followed him. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have provided it to us for salvation. you provided it to us for our sanctification. And so help us to see in Your Word exactly what You want us to see. Let this not be a time of sitting and listening. Let it be a time of feasting, of engaging, of asking You, the Spirit of God, to speak to our hearts, to change us. God, help us not to go through the motions, but to see what you have to say and then who we can teach that to when we leave here. May you do this good, spiritual, mighty work in us for the glory of your name. We pray in your name. Amen. That's not quite what you were expecting. If you've never heard this story before, you think with momentum building, people are being changed, and if anyone would be most amazed by Jesus, it would be the people he grew up with. Now, they they are amazed. Verse 2 says they are astonished, but it's not in a good way. Now, if you know the Gospels, you know this is actually the second time Jesus has been back to his hometown. In Luke chapter 4, right after he's baptized, tempted... uh, By the Satan in the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit, he goes to his hometown. He sits down in the synagogue uh, for the time of teaching. He opens the scroll and he reads where they left off in Isaiah 61, this messianic verse. And then he he says to the people, this is being fulfilled in your presence. In other words, this passage in Isaiah talks about the Messiah, I am he. And in that episode in Luke chapter 4, the people began to murmur among themselves, wait, 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 isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Haven't we seen this guy grow up? did we see him learn how to become a carpenter under his father's tutelage? And now, and now he's coming back and claiming to be the fulfillment of this messianic passage that we've waited hundreds of years to see fulfilled? Are you kidding me? And, and Jesus says kind of the same thing. The prophet's not without honor except in his own hometown. And, and they actually, in Luke chapter 4, they grab him. They carry him out to a cliff to throw him over the cliff. Like, this, this kid's out of his mind. Let's just kill him. And then Jesus does one of his uh, messianic Jedi tricks and it says he disappears among them. Like he didn't disappear, but he, he moves away from them among them. Like all of a sudden they can't find him and see him. Just one of those cool things he does sometimes. Now he has continued his ministry. He's gone on and done amazing things. He's back. Maybe the reception will be different. Maybe they've heard more stories, more miracles and demonstrations of power. Maybe or not. So see in the text today, see Jesus returning to unbelieving Nazareth and then sending out the twelve. See in this story the reality of our mission, the offense of our mission, and the obedience of our mission. Let's first begin with the reality of our mission. Jesus began his ministry in the Gospel of Mark by having John the Baptist prepare the way before him, telling everybody, uh, I'm baptizing you in repentance of sin, but there's one greater coming, one who's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, this one who's, who is God. Here he is. It's Jesus. I'm baptizing him. I'm telling everybody that's him. And then Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And then Jesus begins to preach in the Gospel of Mark. This message of repentance and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then the very next thing he does, if you remember Mark chapter 1, is he calls men to follow him. And he says in Mark 1, 17, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you do what I'm doing. Call others to follow me. In Mark 3, he called specifically the twelve to him. And it says in Mark 3, 13-15. And he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. They were in relationship with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Be with me, do my work in my power. The same work that I'm doing. And all through the gospel of Mark, you see Jesus on mission. This mission of service. This mission of preaching the gospel. This mission of demonstrating the gospel in power. And all through Mark, he's calling people to follow him. He's sending them out. Uh, later on in Mark, he's going to send out the 72 in pairs. Here we see Jesus come to Nazareth, preach, demonstrate power. It's not well received. And then take the 12, pair them up, send them out to preach the gospel, this repentance of sin, and demonstrate the power of gospel in casting out demons and healing the sick. In other words, this is what I've been doing. Now you 12, you go and do this work that you've seen me do in my power. Continue the work that I've begun. Now, Now were they ready? No, they weren't ready. Did they have it all figured out? No, you're going to see through the rest of the Gospel of Mark. They continue to be a dumpster fire. They continue to get things wrong. They continue to make mistakes. It's like There's no point where all of a sudden we become perfect enough to be sent out on mission. The moment you come alive in Christ, you're on mission. At your, at your most immature time, at your most unprepared time, why? Because you have the gospel, you have the spirit of God, you have the word of God, you have everything you need to be on mission. Like if you're resistant because to, 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 to be on mission with Christ, to, to share the gospel, to speak the gospel, to demonstrate the gospel, because gosh, I don't know what to say and I, I don't know if I can answer everybody's questions and, and I don't know if I'm going to do it right. The, the, those are all just excuses, smoke screens. You're ready. If you're alive in Christ, you're ready. You have the spirit of God. You don't have to go through schools and you don't have to go through tons of equipping and training to get everything right. You're never going to get everything right. You're never going to do it perfectly. Just go. Depend on the Spirit of God. Depend on the Word of God to accomplish the will of God in the lives of those around you. And so these 12 were sent carrying out the mission of Christ. Uh, Later in the Gospels, he sends out 72 in pairs. His resurrection in the Gospel... After his resurrection in the Gospel of John, he tells them, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. In the book of Acts, he tells them, Wait for the Holy Spirit to come, and when he comes, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit comes to these 12 men in the the book of Acts, chapter 2. 12 men, minus Judas, insert Matthias. And then... those twelve began to preach the gospel on the day of Pentecost and demonstrate the power of the gospel as they began to heal people and give evidence to the fact that the Spirit of God was in them. This is the mission that has continued on for 2,000 years until today in the Crossing Church, in the city of Monroe, in 2016. We are caught up in the same exact mission that these twelve were caught up in, that Jesus began That God began when he created all things and all things were cursed by sin. And then God began his plan of redemption to send the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. It's real for them. It's real for us. Now, Jesus' mission was slightly different because his mission uh, contained him going to a cross, dying on the cross, being buried in a grave and rising from the dead. It's different slightly, slightly, because while we don't go to the cross, we aren't physically raised from the dead We are crucified with Christ. We are spiritually resurrected to live a new life with the Spirit of God empowering us in the same way the Spirit of God empowered Jesus. So so understand this, Christian. Your life is primarily not about what you want and what you desire. Your life is about what God wants and desires for your life. For us to wake up every day and make our day all about what we want is to fail to report the duty for the mission that God has created you for and called you to. If your life is simply about what you want, you're not clocked in. You're off the clock. You're not engaged. Now, you might have a great life by standards of our culture. You may achieve the American dream. But that's not the life that God's created us to have and live. Your day begins with, what do you want me to do today, Jesus? And the day ends with, how did I do? Whatever we got right, it's only by His grace. So He gets all the glory. And where we fail, His sacrifice covers all of our sin. And there's no shame. There's no condemnation. There's a new day. There's a new day where His mercies are new every morning to start again. This is our life. This is why we are still here. This is why you are alive. This is why you aren't in glory in heaven. Because of the mission that Jesus is sending you and I on. We, we do go to work and we do go to school and we do live in homes and neighborhoods and we do take care of family and we have friends and hobbies and we manage our money and resources and time and we eat good food and we take vacations and we play on sports teams or we watch our kids play. We go to movies. We drive cars. We do all the normal stuff that everybody does. But the difference is, all of that's part of our mission. The mission infuses all of that. And so work is not just a paycheck or a place to play pranks on people. But work is a place to use your gifts and talents for God's glory, to be a blessing to your business and company about how hard and good you work, and to be a blessing and a place of gospel conversation for your coworkers because you genuinely care about their souls. It's not really important what the job is because all jobs are worked with that kind of intentionality it's part of the mission our house our neighborhood is not just where we relax and hang out where we're not at work again it's a tool it's a location to be used as part of our mission where we invite neighbors in with hospitality we bless neighbors with acts of kindness we we're a place that our neighbors can look at and say i'm glad they're in the neighborhood because there in the neighborhood, there's more peace, there's more love, there's more joy, there's more blessing in our neighborhood. We're so infused, infusing our neighbors with the blessings of God that if we move out of that neighborhood, there's a hole there. I wish they still lived there. Something very good is gone. And so we trace this out through every area of our life. Where, where you live, where you go to school, the hobbies that you have, where you shop, where you eat, where you play. Where you drive, where you buy gas, where you watch movies, where you find Pokemon characters, it's all part of the mission of Jesus you are sent on and every single aspect of life has to be run through this paradigm of mission and gospel intentionality. Everything. Like there's no part of your life where you could say, alright God, this is mine. Now I can do what I want to do. I'm free from the mission. Every part is part of the mission. Every part belongs to Him. Guys, this This is exciting. This is incredible. You're on a mission with Jesus, and you don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to fly around the world. You don't have to have reverend in front of your name. You just have to be alive and follow Jesus. That's it. You're qualified. You're on a mission with the God who created the universe. This is amazing. There are no coincidental conversations or, or encounters. There's no chance or luck and what you're doing and and how you're engaging in life it's part of your mission so just look around keep your eyes open your heart ready your mind engaged your spirit full and be ready how is the spirit of God working in the lives of people around you how can you be a part of that work ask that question about everybody you're around this is our mission this is why we live Jesus did it the disciples did it and now we carry it forward in our context The reality of our mission. Secondly, the offense of our mission. So so just because we're on mission with the God who created the universe and we're carrying out the mission of Jesus in our world doesn't mean everybody's going to love our mission or love us. Look at verse 2 and 3 of chapter 6. On the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. The word there for offense in verse 3 is the word that we get our word scandalous from. Jesus was scandalous to them. To scandalize is not just to have a difference of opinion. We just agree to disagree and go our separate ways but it's to be offended by someone. What they're doing and what they're saying is so offensive. I have disdain for them. I have scorn for them. And this is how Jesus' hometown felt about him. They had disgust. And their disgust is apparent in how they insulted him. Like, how could he possibly do all these things? Where did he get all this wisdom from? We saw this kid grow up. He didn't go to all the rabbinical schools There's nothing special about him. Who does he think he is? We we know who he is, in fact. He is Mary's son. Now that's a low blow. That's a dig. You, You never refer to a man as the son of his mother in this culture. You always refer to him as the son of his father. Even if his father is dead, which some people think Joseph might have been dead by now. But what they're referring to Is what they remember about his birth. Oh yeah, we remember her. All of a sudden she's pregnant, she's not married, says she's still a virgin. You're right. We know how it works, sister. It was scandalous his birth. Ostracizing. And so they were and this happens several other times in the Gospels. And so they're referring back to that. Yeah, we know, we know where you came from. We know the circumstances around your birth, Jesus. And you want us to believe that you're this Messiah? You get a hint of this back in chapter 3. Jesus' family thought he was crazy. They wanted to control him and push back on him. Now it's his entire hometown, disgusted with him. And Jesus then warned his disciples, you might get the same treatment. Look at verse 10 and 11 of chapter 6. He said to them, whenever you enter house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony to them. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount Matthew 5 verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus would tell his disciples in John 15 the night before he's crucified, if the world hates you, know that it hated me in John 15 before it hated you, if you were not if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. why? why were the people of Nazareth so offended? why does the gospel offend well in the case of nazareth this offense was related to the fact that jesus was just too common it's too ordinary familiarity breeds contempt especially among contemptible people philip brooks said he can't be the messiah we know him we know the scandal of his birth he, he can't be god in the flesh he's done some amazing things we can't really explain it maybe it's the devil maybe it's a trick but he's not god Paul would say in 1 Corinthians one twenty three that the gospel message of Jesus crucified is a stumbling block for the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. Foolishness. The Jews had no concept of a Messiah who would suffer and die and be raised from the dead. They had no concept of physical resurrection. Like this was not on their radar. They're not looking for it. Their Messiah is a king. He comes and rules. Others serve him. The, the Messiah doesn't come and serve others. He doesn't suffer for others. Which is why... Even Jesus, even though he's telling his disciples this is going to happen, it's why they didn't believe him. It's why they weren't gathered around the tomb when he rose from the dead. They didn't. They didn't have no, no parameter that this would happen. It's a stumbling block. The Greeks. It's foolishness to the Greeks because they have no concept of anyone being great who is humble and weak. Their gods ruled from Olympus and threw down lightning bolts. They didn't. God, their gods didn't become men and suffer and serve humility. That's that's ridiculous. Who would worship? A god like that the gospel still offends today tim Keller made the point that sometimes in our culture we imagine that jesus was was someone more like mr rogers right you know mr rogers neighborhood won't you be my neighbor it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood you got his cardigan on his slippers He's warm and fuzzy and cuddly and like no nobody could be offended by mr rogers you should go hang out at his house and go to make believe land you know you never go down the drain, you never go down you never go down, you never, all these wonderful songs that you sing and sometimes we have this concept of Jesus that he's like Mr. Rogers but if you I don't know where we got that, maybe it's the children's Bibles, maybe it's all the feather haired pictures of Jesus or whatever, but if you read the gospels Jesus is not Mr. Rogers not at all in fact, John Sott said in his book, Basic Christianity, it, uh, it says if you read the Bible, you see no one ever responded to Jesus moderately. Every response to Jesus is extreme. Whenever people met Jesus and heard what he had to say, there are only three things they did. and They did. They either ran away from him in fear, they murderously turned upon him and tried to kill him, or they fell down and surrendered everything to him. No one ever liked Jesus. No one ever said, I like him. You tried to kill him, you ran away scared, or he became Lord, and you gave everything away to follow him. That's the three responses of Jesus. This is not just a run-of-the-mill, moderate guy. This is an extreme guy that requires an extreme response from us, from our city, from the people we encounter. We don't get that soft half-hearted response to Jesus in our culture today probably because we don't preach Jesus as he's demonstrated in the gospels. We present a Jesus that is like Mr. Rogers. He just wants to love you and let you stay exactly the way you are instead of come into your life and take over and crush everything that is evil and sinful in you and demand radical obedience and will not be okay with you and me as long as we're half-heartedly trying to serve him. That's Jesus. This is the king of the universe. As long as we proclaim a Jesus that is like Mr. Rogers, then you get those responses from people. Maybe tomorrow. It doesn't really matter. He's still going to love me. I can just kind of keep wasting my life. He's He's okay with me. It's offensive The true Jesus, the true gospel. It's offensive to say in our culture that Jesus is the only way to salvation. So those who Jesus alone, without any mixture or addition of good works, is the way of salvation. And the gospel alone is the way of salvation. And unless someone hears the gospel, they can't be saved. And so for those who are old enough to be morally responsible and who have never heard the gospel, they have not Cannot be saved. Thousands of people groups representing millions upon millions of people around the world dying every single day who have never heard the gospel. Waiting for the gospel to come, waiting for the scriptures to be in their language, headed into a Christless eternity. Every day, And that's why we're here. That's why we have a mission. Like if there was another way they could be saved apart from the gospel, then why would Jesus send us? It would be better if we didn't go. He could just save them through creation, our general revelation. There are millions of people in church services today whose church does not proclaim an accurate gospel, but proclaims a false gospel. Millions around our nation. The largest church in our nation preaches a false gospel gospel with a big smile on his face mormons and jehovah's witness preach a false gospel other churches will skew the gospel and preach a gospel of good works where you have to do all these things in order to be saved or keep your salvation it might not be enough to say it's a false gospel but it's definitely an incomplete gospel and then some preach a light gospel Becoming a follower of Jesus is no different than joining a club. One of the primary ways the gospel may offend in our context is the fact that Jesus has done everything necessary for salvation, and we can't do anything to earn it or keep it. It's a gift to be received. And while many in our churches may affirm that fact and theological truth, they don't live their life as though it's true. Now I've got to follow rules to prove I'm a good person. To prove I'm righteous, to prove that I'm a Christian, not out of freedom, because he's given me a new nature and I'm free to be holy and righteous, and, and I do it with joy, but now I've, now I've got to prove I'm a Christian. I have to prove how righteous I am by how good I do. And so I'll live this joyless, grinded out life to show everyone how amazing I am. And of course, Jesus saved me, because I'm amazing. Look at me, look at how I go. Of course he wanted me on his team because he knew if he didn't have me on his team, he couldn't accomplish his mission because I'm so amazing. Look at my good works. That's not freedom. That's bondage. The gospel offends this person who wants to prove themselves by their good works. You can't do enough good to all of a sudden have Jesus say, of course I saved you. Look at you no matter how amazing you are at following Jesus, He doesn't need you or me. He doesn't need us. God doesn't need anything, which is why He's God. He doesn't need us. He graciously wants us. He freely chooses us. Not because we're amazing, but because He's amazing for saving this glorious tire fire that we are made in the image of God you're not that impressive quit patting yourself on the back because you're here today are you in a missional community are you doing DNA are you read your Bible every day this week or you share the gospel with someone he's impressive you and I are impressive because he made us and makes us impressive in his image and saves us from our sorriness and we're still sorry we're just redeemed sorry do you feel humble good do you feel offended good the gospel offends the gospel crushes our pride it drives us down so far that all we can do is look up and cry out for mercy and grace in our time of need Guys, our city is full of people maybe some here who swell with pride when you start talking about all they've done and all they've accomplished is jesus followers and it doesn't mean jack squat apart from jesus Everything we have, he gave us. Everything we can do, he empowers. Even if we get rewarded at the end, we will stand before him and we're still going to lay those down before him, those rewards, and give him all the credit. Nobody's patting himself on the back in heaven. Nobody's having songs written about them in heaven. It's all about him. The gospel offends the person who wants to prove how amazing they are by their good works. The gospel offends the person who doesn't think they have to do good works. I've checked the Jesus box. Now I can pretty much do whatever I want, right? And so they live like hell on earth, but because they've checked the Jesus box, they think they're in. And probably a church or a pastor has given them this false assurance of salvation because all you got to do is jump through this certain hoop. And there's this call, there's this life uh, sacrificial commitment to Jesus that followers of Jesus have always demonstrated. And if it's missing from your life, there's great reason to question your salvation. There's great reason to ask yourself, why don't I love him? Why am I not captivated by him? Why don't I love his word? Why don't I pursue him in prayer? Why don't I love the people around me enough to share the gospel with them? Is it because I'm lost? Maybe. Maybe. Because there's a lot of people who claim to be a follower of Jesus who aren't. They're not. And the gospel comes in and says, and, and offends this person and says, no, you have to repent and believe again in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a lifestyle of repentance in faith in Christ. This is the gospel. As Tim Keller says, the gospel is... We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet at the same, very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. It's offensive to some. You can't tell me how sinful I am. I'm a member of blank. Look what I've done. But in light of God's holiness, the best that we have to offer is like a menstrual cloth, Isaiah says. Yet, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. Like even on our worst day, you are fully loved. You can't be loved more. No, no, no. I've got to do something to keep this love, to earn this love. Just be loved by him. So much that your heart and mind are full of him. All the time. The gospel is offensive because it crushes our arrogance and pride. that makes us think we play some role in our salvation. We play no role in our salvation which allows us to take any credit. Yet, yes, we repent, yes, we believe, but even those are empowered by the Spirit of God. Even those are only possible by His grace. The gospel is offensive to some because the gospel seems easy. Repent, believe. Wash, rinse, repeat. Repent, believe. Repent, believe. Yep, that's it. That's the Christian life. It never changes. The rest of your life as a follower of Jesus is simply continually repenting of sin usually the same sins, turning again and again, trusting Jesus over and over and over. We're not created, or we're not called to chase burning bushes, or try and walk on water. We're not supposed to try and see angels or demons or gold dust or have seeds of faith turning to millions of dollars because of our amazing faith. We're simply called to be a people who continually, 10,000 times a day, turn from sin and turn to Jesus. And what happens when we do this very simple thing is we become a people who are more and more captivated by Jesus and our lives begin to look more and more like Him in our character, conduct, and conversation, which means the world will treat us like they treated Him, which is good because then we know Jesus and the gospel are coming through loud and clear. So then what do we do? Thirdly, the obedience of our mission, what do we do? We have this definite call to mission, which we know will offend people. The more your thinking and acting lines up with Scripture, the more offensive you're going to be. Don't go looking for it, but don't be surprised when it happens. Biblical thinking will eventually press everyone, and so realizing that, what do we do? We follow through on our mission. By the grace of God, by the Spirit of God in us, we obey and we go. Now, interestingly, Jesus limited his power in Nazareth. His power wasn't, don't miss this, his power wasn't limited... He chose to limit his power. Look at verse 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And then he went out among the villages teaching. Only twice in all the gospels it says Jesus marveled. He marveled at the faith of the centurion who came to Jesus wanting his servant healed. And Jesus healed the servant without him even having to see the servant. He just gave the word and he had such authority that the servant was healed far away and he marveled at the lack of faith of his hometown. Now, he did a few miracles, it says in verse 5, but then he cut it off. Not because their lack of faith was sovereign over his power. Not that our faith determines how God will act. God's not a vending machine. We put in the right amount of quarters and things happen. Right? But because the reason he limited his power is because the miracles were not going to accomplish the intended purpose of the miracles. The miracles that Jesus did were not magic tricks. It was like he was just trying to make people go, ooh, ah, watch this, Whew, heal this person. That wasn't the purpose of his miracles. The purpose of his miracles was to spread the kingdom. So people would believe and come to faith in him as Messiah and King and Lord and Savior. But their hearts in Nazareth were so hard, and it happened in some other places too, that wasn't going to happen. They would just go, ooh, ah, how's he doing this? I don't know. He's not the Messiah. And so he gives this famous saying, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Jesus uses a double negative. Like, it wasn't that he didn't know grammar. He uses a double negative to emphasize the intensity of the rejection. This is how bad it was. And then he turns to the twelve and sends them out to other places to do his work. Look at seven, and, 7 through 9. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Notice a, a few things. They're, they are also going to face rejection and opposition, he told them, and when they do, he tells them to shake the dust from your feet. as a a sign of judgment against that town and their rejection of the Messiah. But notice how they went and did their work. First, they went in the authority of Christ. We are His ambassadors. We go in the name of Christ. Ultimately, if we proclaim the gospel, it's Jesus and the gospel that offend, not our personal preferences. If, If our personal preferences are offending people, and it's not the gospel, then we need to repent. We need to change. Because the only thing that's supposed to offend is the gospel. Not the extra things that we add to it. Well, you know, a a real serious Christian reads the ESV. If you really want to understand the text. That's a personal preference. That's subjective. If we offend people with with that kind of arrogant thinking, we need to repent. Are, are, Are real Christians going to be reformed in their theology? Like you can't be a Christian if you're not reformed. That's a a personal conviction that the Bible doesn't give us. And if we are arrogant enough to think those kinds of things, we need to repent. Only thing that should offend is the gospel. It is Jesus. And we go in his authority. We are under his authority, not our own authority. It's his name we make much of. Not our church, not our name. Secondly, notice they traveled light. Don't be encumbered by anything. Don't take anything extra. Keep it simple. Keep it focused. Only take what you need. So he gives us descriptions on what they carry and what they wear and what they don't bring and what they do bring. Thirdly, they travel dependently. Like if they were going to have a place to stay and food to eat, they would have to trust that God would provide. They didn't start raising money for the next five years. We've got five years wages, so now we can go on mission. No, they just went. Our Father will provide. Our Father will take care of us. And then fourthly, they travel together. Like no one goes alone. There's companionship for encouragement accountability. Which is huge about who we are as a crossing church. And so, so what about you and me? We also have a mission, a mission that will be offensive. Don't believe the lie that you can make Jesus and the gospel so palatable to everyone that everyone will receive it with joy and not be offended. If the gospel hasn't offended the people you're trying to reach, you need to ask yourself, have I really given them the gospel? That doesn't mean that you're going to share the gospel with somebody and they're going to jump up and start beating you in the head, persecuting you or cussing you or, you know, calling you names or anything like that or or rejecting you like they rejected Jesus and and so forth. That it could be as simple as you sharing the gospel with somebody, and they are reluctant to believe because they see the cost. I don't. I don't know if I can do that. That's. I, I see what the gospel demands of me, and I, I don't know if I can do that. It could be as simple as that. Guys, we can be loving and kind and gracious, and we should befriend people who are far from God and get into gospel conversations. And then when they are offended, because the gospel is pressing on them, we don't pull away, but we press in. We continue to befriend them and continue to love them and continue to speak the truth of the gospel. We speak truth and love. We speak grace and truth. It has to be both. If all you do is speak a truth with no love, you're just a sledgehammer. And nobody listens to you. If all you do is speak love with no truth, you're an appeaser. And nobody listens to you. Because they don't know if they're going to get the truth from you. It has to be both. And we go and we do this together. No one goes alone. This passage is very influential in how we do church. You, some of you who were there may remember that on the night uh, in April of 2014, we had a, a sending service where we launched our missional communities. We had it in the BCM, a building that no longer exists. And this is the passage that we taught. Mark 6, 7 through 13. Because it's so influential into who we are as a church. We have stripped down church to its essence, gospel community, disciples who make disciples, gospel transformation. We don't have or provide all the variety of ministries that a lot of other churches do. It's not because we don't have the manpower or the money It's because we don't want our mission encumbered with unnecessary things. We want our lives free to pursue this mission in everyday life. So don't come back here on Sunday night to this building. Go have your neighbors over for a meal in your home and show hospitality and bless them. Don't come back here on Wednesday night for another service. Go on mission in our city to love and bless our city and share the gospel with people who are far from God. Don't invest time and energy in men's ministry and women's ministry and and senior adult ministry and this ministry and that ministry or other segregated ministries. Go with your family on mission in the city of Monroe. Love and serve your neighbors and share the gospel. Go chase pocket monsters all over the city, but do it with people who are far from God that you could talk to about the gospel when you sit around and compare. I don't even know. I'm not even talk about it because I don't even understand it. How many monsters you call it? Maybe if that's accurate. If it's not, sorry. Go play golf or work out, but do it with lost people. Go eat good restaurants, but do it with people you're pursuing. Do it with your brothers and sisters in this church for gospel community. Guys, we speak the gospel where we actually tell people who Jesus is and what he's done, and then we demonstrate the power of the gospel as they did in verse Uh, 12 and 13. Does that mean we're going to do miracles and cast out demons? Maybe. Don't assume you won't. But however that power is demonstrated, it is pointing people back to the gospel, not pointing people to how amazing and awesome you are, which is what a lot of the miracles of today, the demonstrations of power are done today to do, to make much of this healer, this ministry, so you'll give more more money and you'll come to their events. That's not furthering the gospel. It's furthering that person. The power that that we demonstrate is a power that furthers the gospel. It's a power of the gospel. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is a power behind our message because the Spirit of God is behind our message to bring life where the gospel is proclaimed and lived out. There is no power where there is no mission. Make sure you hear me this morning. There is no power where there is no mission. If you're not on mission, you don't need His power. If you're simply going to make your life all about you, your comforts, your pleasures, your appetites, your wants, your desires, if that's all you're going to chase, you don't need the Spirit of God to do that. Everybody's doing that. Just do what everybody's doing. You can be like the rest of our culture and chase that, and then be miserable with this facade of happiness. But if you're going to join your king on his scandalous mission that will offend people, but will also see people turn from sin, turn to him and see people radically transformed by the gospel, you have to have the spirit of God. You will need his power. You can't do this apart from him. So how about a church? Let's go be the people of God with the power of God for the mission of God with the gospel of God for the glory of God. This is why we're alive. This is why we're here. Let's pray. Jesus, we're amazed. Amazed that you would send 12 men like these 12 disciples. Imperfect, flawed, mistake prone, didn't even come close to understanding it fully at this time in your ministry, yet you sent them. Because you knew the power that you sent them with and you knew what you wanted to accomplish. And so here we are, a people, flawed, imperfect, mistake prone, fearful, timid, Unsure of what we should do day to day. And and yet you send us. You send us out to share your truth. Your love with our city. (laughs) It's amazing. So Father. Spirit come. And do the work that you need to do in us. So we can go in power. We can go in freedom. And we can go in joy. for the glory of Christ working through us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.